Racewalk Podcast, Episode 42. Welcome to the Raise to Walk Podcast, where we're walking out the life of faith. Romans 6, verse 4 reads, As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And this show is designed to help you do just that. Now here's your host, Carla Alvarez. Thanks for joining me again with the Race to Walk podcast. And today I'm going to do a review on a book called The Two Powers in Heaven. And it's by a Jewish scholar uh, whose name is Alan Siegel. So the Trinity is one of the biggest issues encountered when discussing the Christian faith with those who believe in God, but not quite the God of Christianity. Mormons, Muslims, and Jews all believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. However, they believe in a strictly monotheistic God, one being and one person. Yahid in Hebrew means a solitary numeric one. While Christians are monotheists who believe in God who is three persons in one being. Ehad, a composite oneness in unity and essence. In the course of the conversation, the Yehidist monotheist might say something along the lines of, well, the Jews of Jesus' day had no concept of multiple persons in the Godhead. The Trinity is a later invention forced on the church by Constantine and incorporated beliefs of Babylonian, he- Egyptian, Greek, take-your-pick paganism. Have you heard that before? Most people have. So many people believe this, but it is not at all true. So The Two Powers in Heaven by Alan Siegel explores and analyzes the early rabbinic commentary against those who believed that there were two powers in heaven. Siegel writes from a position that opposes Trinitarianism, and that is considered orthodox within modern Judaism. He was a Yehidist, a strict monotheist. Siegel did not believe that there are two powers which are God, and he considered the belief in two powers a heresy. However, he did recognize through his research that this belief was found in Judaism within the first century and earlier. His book researches those first arguments against what he considered to be the two powers heresy and explores the possibilities for the targets, including Christians, Gnostics, and different sects of Judaism. So before I review the actual book, I would like to give a brief history of the origins of modern Judaism. During the Second Temple period, there were a number of sects of Judaism. Through reading the New Testament, we are familiar with two of those sects, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. However, there were also other sects, such as the Essenes and the Zealots. Within those sects, there were also varying beliefs. After the destruction of the temple by Titus in AD 70, the Leviticus system of worship and sacrifice came to an end, and what became Rabbinic Judaism formed out of the Pharisaical schools. Rabbinic writings such as the Mishnah and the Talmud began to be codified at the end of the 2nd century AD. 
As Siegel notes in The Two Powers, many of the earliest writings found in the Mishnah and the Talmud are polemics written in response to Christian beliefs which the rabbis rejected. Siegel begins by giving an overview of the rabbinic discussion regarding the Two Powers heresy and presents possibilities for their object. Just as we today have a plurality of beliefs about God and His nature, there were diverse beliefs at the time of the second century. Beyond the Christians who believed in the three persons of the Godhead, Gnostics were also prevalent. The most common form of Gnosticism was dualistic in nature, believing in two opposing deities, one good and one evil. However, there also appears to have been atheists at the time who believed in no power in heaven. Regardless, the two powers polemic was directed towards all those who were not monotheists, and specifically those who did not believe in a god with a single person, one who was Yahid. In part two, Siegel lays out evidence of the issue itself and explains why it was so hotly debated. He includes references in scripture of what he considers to be conflicting appearances of God along with rabbinic interpretation. A discussion on the nature and the purpose of angelic powers is also covered. The final section discusses the differing views at the time of the beginning of the new millennia. Siegel examines how philosophers such as Philo, and more on this later, viewed the text as well as apocalyptic sects such as the Essenes. Siegel also pre presents the case of the early church writers and as well as the Gnostic view. So how did this intense debate come into the forefront? Many of the passages under discussion could possibly be interpreted in a variety of ways, but it was a vision that caused everyone to stop and reassess what they thought they knew. In Daniel chapter 7, in the middle of a somewhat symbolic vision, Daniel sees a clear picture of God. This is in verses 9 through 10. I watched as thrones were put in place and the Ancient One sat down to judge. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. Then the court began its session, and the books were open. The Ancient One was obviously the Great I Am. However, the controversy did not come from this, but who was with him? As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a Son of Man coming in with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world, so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Compare this to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6-7. through 7. For a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called... Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. How can a human son be Mighty God and Everlasting Father? This seems to have caused intense debate. 
Now, just a side note on the dating of Daniel. Liberal scholarship insists that the book of Daniel was of late authorship, in spite of the fact that it would have had to have been considered canon by the time of the translation of the Septuagint, and that the language and the references within the book itself support its traditional dating rather than later. The reason for the resistance to the early dating is the same reason for the resistance to the early dating of the Gospels in the New Testament. The books contain fulfilled prophecy. Daniel contains very specific fulfilled prophecy about the course of nations and the timing even. But I think that this entire discussion about the Son of Man and the implications it has for the nature of God himself is further evidence for the early dating of Daniel. If you read the intertestamental books, you can see the role the speculation on this vision of a second figure at the right hand of God played in their writing. The primary figure in the book of Jubilees is the angel of the presence. An explanation of this figure also seems to play a role in the development of Philo's idea of the Logos. What would cause the trajectory of this thought, which was considered orthodox within Judaism, if not for this extraordinary vision of Daniel? Daniel would have had to have been written early enough to be widely disseminated and accepted for this to happen. And in order for such a dramatic shift, they had to have seen the fulfillment of the prophecy. This wouldn't have been the case if it was written about the time of the Maccabees. In addition to the question of the identity and the role of the Son of Man, another major part of the controversy, which is referenced in the biblical passage itself, is the dilemma of how to mediate justice and mercy. How can God be perfectly just and yet merciful? If he is just, he can do nothing other than give a judgment that is exactly what we deserve. This would seem to preclude mercy. How can God be merciful while executing righteous judgment? One cannot be perfectly merciful while at the same time perfectly just. There must be an intermediary between the two and a person to mediate. It is this that led to the school of thought regarding the Logos, most commonly associated with Philo, and those unfamiliar with Philo will likely recognize this concept in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. As Siegel explains, Philo's concept of the Logos is a combination of the Platonic ideas of divine intermediation and the Stoic world spirit. Logos is the equivalent with the intelligible world. But because it can be hypostasized, the Logos can also be viewed as a separate agent and called a god. Hence, any Jew who shared Philo's ideas of the nature of divinity could be a prime candidate for the charge of two powers in heaven. These two discussions, among others, were taking place during the centuries immediately preceding the birth of Christ. The need for a mediator, a logos or acting agent in the physical world for the God who is pure spirit, and the interesting question of the role and person of one who is like the Son of Man. The writings of the Dead Sea Scrolls shed some light on the conclusion the Essenes came to regarding this question. However, in terms of the content of this book, Siegel includes an interesting side note of that of a rabbi's. 
Rabbi Akiba lived at the end of the first century and the beginning of the second, and is known as one of the most important backers of the failed messianic claimant, Barkoba. He is considered one of the wisest and holiest of Israel's rabbis. He too puzzled over the opposing requirements of justice and mercy. Siegel includes a commentary which is presented as a discussion with Rabbi Akiba on the meaning of the two thrones of Daniel chapter 7. And he writes, One passage says, His throne was fiery flames. And another passage says, Until thrones were placed, and one that was ancient of days did sit. There is no contradiction. One throne for him, and one for David. So note the belief that it is David in the second throne, the Son of Man, obviously incorporates Psalm 110 verse 1, which says, My Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. This is a view of Rabbi Akiba. Says Rabbi Yoshi the Galilean to him, Akiba, how long will you treat the divine presence as profane? rather one for justice and one for grace. Did he accept this explanation from him or did he not accept it? Come and hear, one for justice and one for grace. This is a view of Rabbi Akiba. However, this was not the end of the consideration. As Siegel tells us, at the end of his life, Rabbi Akiba came to believe that rather than David or an angel, that both figures in heaven were seen to be divine one God in two hypostases. One God, two hypostases. That is the conclusion of one of Israel's wisest rabbis. This language of hypostases or persons is the same which Christians from the earliest times have used to describe the persons of the Trinity. The Trinity is not a foreign or pagan concept, but one that was birthed from the most foundational concepts of Second Temple Judaism itself. However odd it may be, it was the only conclusion that accounted for every clue given in Scripture. The references to God with a plural noun and a singular verb. The conversations between the Godhead. The reference to two acting agents in numerous stories the appearance to man of the unseeable God himself, the necessity of a mediator, and finally, Daniel's actual vision of both the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. God could be nothing except triune. As a Christian, I obviously believe that Rabbi Akiba's conclusion is a correct one, that Daniel's vision of the Son of Man at the right hand of God is the two out of three hypostases two persons of one God or being. Reading this book, it was interesting to me to see just how many verses modern Judaism considers problematic and has to explain away or ignore. Siegel understood the Christian belief in the Trinity. Several times throughout the book, he qualifies his explanation of the various rabbinic arguments, which are essentially straw men, but not always. There are times he let the straw man stand. I suppose this is to be expected as he was a follower of modern Judaism and firmly believed in a God that is entirely Yahid. However, as a Christian, we need to recognize the arguments that are, in fact, nothing more than a straw man, an argument against a fabricated Christian belief. 
It is important as Christians that we are able to articulate who we believe God to be and His triune nature. There are so many people in other belief systems that struggle with that concept. There are even people who are Christians who don't understand. If you could explain nothing else other than the need for atonement and the nature of the Trinity, I think you would go a long way towards fulfilling Peter's instructions to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. There's another belief in modern Judaism that is opposite of Christian belief that I was completely unaware of until I read this book. And that is the belief that God is the author of evil as well as good. Christianity and modern Judaism are poles apart in what they believe about the nature of God. Even though the Son of God movie ends with the claim, but there was darkness in the light, that is completely unscriptural and antithetical to Christian belief. We believe in a holy and righteous God, completely perfect. As John states, this is a message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. 1 John 1, 5 This may have been an item of discussion during the Second Temple period. Jesus decided the matter. If we believe he is who he says he is, God come as man, we should take his word for it. We do not believe in a God that is both evil and good. He is perfectly good. Not only is Christianity incompatible with modern Judaism in our belief about the person of Jesus Christ, but it also because of what we believe about the fundamental nature and character of God, whether he be one person or three. I know many people who in an attempt to gain a deeper understanding of their Christian faith get into the Jewish or what they call the Hebraic roots of Jesus. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. However, the picture that many not all, but many of the teachers in those side pools of belief paint has no basis in historical reality. Many of them take modern teachings from Judaism, those that either far post-date the time of Christ or that were a minority position during the Second Temple period, and construct a different version of the Gospel. I am not trying to discourage Christians from reading Rabbinic Commentary. It is important to understand the perspective of our Jewish friends so that we can have meaningful and fruitful discussions. What I am saying is to be aware of the ideology that is beneath it and recognize those writings for what they are. They are the beliefs of the Jewish sects that remained after the Romans wiped out the Jewish national resistance. They are written after the New Testament and many were in response to the Christian beliefs that they had rejected. There is an underlying belief that God is not perfectly good, but does both good and evil, and that in spite of the clear statement of Isaiah 43 verse 11, that there is no need for a mediator between God and man, and that through their own works they can not only atone for their own sins, but repair the world. This unitary view of God leaves no room for mercy or grace. There can be no grace with a God who is Yahid. So thanks for joining me today. If you'd like to get links to the books or to read a few more notes on some of the different aspects of this, you can go to raisetowalk.org forward slash P42. 
for the episode article. Also, if you have any questions about it or like to make some comments on this review, just go ahead and leave a comment on the article again at racetowalk.org forward slash P42. Or feel free to send me an email at contact at racetowalk.org. Now let's end this time together with a prayer. Lord, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you made a way for us to be right with you. And also, Lord, thank you so much that you put us in a time and a place where the truth of your word is so clear that you have given us the resources to have a better understanding of youth through continued fulfillment of prophecies, such as the reestablishment of the state of Israel, and that we live in a time when we have the, the evidence of the Dead Sea Scrolls that, that prove that your word has remained consistent and true throughout 2,000 years. Just so amazing. Lord, give us your spirit of wisdom and understanding. Help us continue to grow in a better knowledge of you. And Lord, help us not only to have that, that spirit of wisdom, but also to have a clarity of expression that we can communicate your truth to those who don't yet know you. I ask all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Raised to Walk podcast. We'd love for you to continue to walk with us. So head over to raisedtowalk.org news to get free updates. Have a blessed day and we'll see you next time. Thank you.